Hi, and welcome to the Active Travel Podcast's pilot episode. The Active Travel Podcast is the podcast for the Active Travel Academy, an academic think tank, if you like, on all things cycling, walking and micromobility. It's part of the University of Westminster in London. I'm Laura Laker, an Active Travel journalist collaborating with the Active Travel Academy. And I'm Rachel Aldred. I'm the director of the Active Travel Academy and I'm a reader in transport at Westminster University. And to kick off, we're talking about media reporting of active travel. So, Rachel, as it's our first podcast, could you start by explaining a little bit about why we're here, how the Active Travel Academy came about and a tiny bit about what it does? So the Active Travel Academy has been going since um, autumn last year. It's funded by a grant from the Quintin Hogg Trust, um, which is affiliated with the University of Westminster and basically set up to bring together interdisciplinary expertise, academic, non-academic expertise around all things active travel related. And we had a whole load of different ideas. We've been doing a range of different projects, collaborations and so on. And one of our ideas was the summer programme where we had various guests who were going to visit and collaborate and so on. Now, obviously, the physical collaborations have been on hold or on hold for a while, but we instead we've been setting up some virtual collaborations, including this podcast. So we hope you enjoy it. And one of the things that we did was do the Active Travel Academy's Media Awards, wasn't it, last year? And which was great because it gave us a bit of an opportunity to launch the Active Travel Academy. And it also made us think a bit more about the kind of role in uh, the media has in how we see active travel as a society and how powerful that is. And it was just around that time, I think maybe a month mm-hmm. before, um, that our guests came up with a study, which is super interesting, which they're here to talk about uh, with us today. So um, those guests are all the way from Texas A&M University, Tara Goddard, who is Assistant Professor at the School of Landscape, Architecture and Urban Planning. And from Alaska, Kelsey Ralph. Professor of Transportation Planning at Rutgers University. So could you tell us a bit about yourselves, how you ended up collaborating on media reporting of road collisions uh, from different sides of the United States? Sure. And Laura and Rachel, thanks for having us both here. It's really fun to connect this way. Uh, so we have been friends and colleagues for many years. And Mostly through Twitter, I think we had realized that we both had this shared interest in uh, a lot of the way that we talk about active travel, traffic safety, road design, things like that. So uh, when we both kind of realized we had that interest is where we started talking about a collaboration. Um, The two of us, as well with our colleagues, Calvin Thigpen, who was then at Arizona State and is now with Lime, and then Evan Yakabuchi, a graduate student of Kelsey's. Good old Twitter connecting us across the world. <laughs> there came a point where it was sort of daily screenshots of tweets of news coverage. And I think that both of us are a little bit motivated out of a place of anger and rage. And like, this is unacceptable. Let's do a project to show that. I think um, I think all of us who work in this field have had those moments. And it's, it seems to be a commonality with English speaking countries that uh, media reporting of road collisions is, does seem to be sort of biased towards drivers. And so can you tell us about your, about your study and how, how you kind of decided what you were going to do and, and, and what you did? Sure. So the first study we did is we really just wanted to see, okay, we have this 
idea that these patterns are happening, this victim blaming, this focus on the pedestrian, the absolving the driver. But, you know, it was just like, do we have some kind of confirmation bias? Are we just noticing these more or are these patterns really happening? So we wanted to even just inventory and get a sense of what are the different ways that this language or framing gets used? How pervasive is it? And so we looked at 200 articles across the U.S. from local news reports about crashes that involve a bicyclist or pedestrian, serious injury or crash, and 100 involving a bicyclist and 100 involving a pedestrian. And that's where we, through a process that we developed, pretty fine-grained way of coding or analyzing the articles for, you know, use of passive voice, use of victim blaming, uh, whether they focus on the driver or the car, for example. And even though that was, you know, pretty fine grain and we went through all that, then we were able to kind of really distill it down into two issues, um, just how pervasive this victim blaming is um, and then looking at the potential effects. And so we, through that, we confirmed essentially what we had thought we were seeing was just this was widespread. It was very common. I don't know, Kelsey, you want to add in on that? Yeah. So we actually found two different kinds of problems. And the first is like a sentence level issue. And this one's the easiest one to fix, right? We, um, in the, the way that we cover crashes now, we tend to focus on the pedestrian or the victim of the crash. We say the pedestrian was hit rather than saying a car or a driver hit a pedestrian. And that doesn't sound like a major issue, except for that we know from a whole host of studies and media studies that the focus of the sentence gets more of the blame. So um, this tiny, tiny little shift from a pedestrian was hit to a car or a driver hit a pedestrian is going to absolve the pedestrian of blame and sort of shift our attention back to the driver. And that's the kind of act, active or passive voice. That's the difference well, so between... it's not quite active or passive. That's also an issue. But this, it's even simpler than that. Focus. Who is the star of the show within the sentence? Um, the other sort of sentence level thing we found is that we do very funny things with agency. So who, who is the actor in the story? And at the sentence level, we found that a lot of the times we were just leaving out an actor entirely. A pedestrian was hit. By what? By whom? We have no idea. And it, often, stories left out a driver entirely. So not mentioned anywhere in the article at all. We do one other funny thing with agency, and that is if we do mention an agent, four times more likely we were, we were likely to refer to the vehicle rather than the driver. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as I know, there's not quite a lot of autonomous vehicles yet. Most of these crashes have drivers associated with them and they are entirely absolved of responsibility. Yeah, we get the same problem here. Um, and some news stories just don't mention a driver at all. And it's not it's not uncommon at all. I was thinking about this actually. Uh, and I was wondering, because if you're going to put focus on anyone, but you don't know who is responsible for the collision, Obviously, it's more likely that someone driving was the cause of a collision than somebody walking. Or, But I guess you can't assume that as a journalist. I'm wondering what you think about that. That's a great question. So the intent isn't to um, place blame before we know what happens, right? It's just the fact that we know from communication and media studies that 
if you only focus on the pedestrian, people are more likely to think they're at fault. So even just making it more uh, objective, or it's actually making it more neutral to to, fr- to phrase things correctly as when an actor does something, we're not. It doesn't necessarily assign them blame, but it at least brings them into the conversation, right? And then this larger issue that we found of treating all these crashes as one-off events is also part of the problem. So it isn't just that someone behaved badly, um, often the driver, not always, but often the driver, but it's about their responding to the cues of the environment. I'm wondering actually now if um, if now is a good time um, before we move on to bring Rachel in, because this uh, talk about the driver versus sort of mentioning a driver versus mentioning a car is something that you've looked at as well, Rachel, isn't it, in the UK context? Yes, and not around media discourses, but around um, participant, like public discourses, people just describing things that they've seen or experienced or thought about. And it's interesting that you get similar patterns there. I don't know which necessarily comes first, but you can see how they reinforce each other. So a study that I did looked at how people talked in survey comments, talked about bad driving versus bad cycling. And it was quite interesting because there's lots of complaints about bad driving, lots of complaints about bad cycling, but they were narrated really differently and this won't surprise you I guess but um, in terms of bad driving it was very often the car it was like cars speed cars park on the pavement all this kind of thing Um, that was generally what was said whereas in relation to cyclists it was really different it was um, cyclists go through red lights cyclists on the footway you know so it was very different narration and often for cyclists as well it was sort of linked to an outgroup you know sometimes linked to outgroup stereotypes but yeah for drivers it very often disappeared and when there was a um, person mentioned, it often wasn't the driver as well. It was uh, commuters or people park on the pavement. So it, it did seem that they, this kind of thing you get in the way that um, ordinary people talk about their experiences as well. It's similar. And I guess when you talk about someone as a, just a person or a commuter, you know, they're there for legitimate reasons. You're, you're sort of suggesting Yes, I think so. And you didn't really get that with talk about cyclists doing things. It wasn't commuters um, cycle through red lights, whereas for drivers doing bad stuff, it was often commuters or parents park in the way or that kind of thing. It was it sort of personalised them in a way that you didn't get about cyclists. And that's something that even in my earlier work, um, in my dissertation work, looking at you know, these social identity issues where cycling is this thing that you get associated with as this, that's like a deep part of your identity. And therefore when you behave badly, it's like part of your internal motivation to be a jerk or whatever, whereas drivers aren't kind of wrapped up in that idea of being a car user. And then when when they behave badly, it's just kind of a one-off event. It's not something like a deep motivation of theirs. And then you get the issue of uh, the collective responsibility of, um, you know, being a cyclist and and therefore being responsible for members of your in inverted commas community, and uh, and why don't we sort of deal with them? Yeah, I, I call that the exemplar problem. We expect other cyclists to be an exemplar all the time, and you know, hold up the whole the whole group. Yeah, you would never say to a speeding driver, "You're letting everyone down. You're letting the rest of us down." <laughs> Maybe we should, but we don't. Yeah. <laughs> amazing to see how pervasive all of this is because even in talking about this research I've slipped up so many times and said exactly the the thing that we're saying media don't do this 
So it's, um, these are really deeply ingrained. Yeah. And that's something we talked about too, is even though we chose to focus on the media and we do think it's important is that there's these patterns are much broader and more pervasive than that. Like Kelsey is alluding to, you know, whether it's dinner table conversations or in transportation plans and kind of codified documents, you can see these same patterns replicated. And so. Mm. And it's not, it's also, it's not totally divorced from reality in a sense, because it does, in a sense, it does matter that a car hits you and not an individual driver. <laughs> it does make a difference. So it's not completely stupid, but it also depersonalizes and, you know, avoids blame. I think just most people haven't really considered it. I was talking, we're, we're looking at doing some um, media reporting guidelines with the Active Travel Academy because of this very issue. And I was speaking to someone from Impress, one of the media regulators in this country and um and they were saying you know they think about this about the way that the media works all the time and the impact that has but they'd never thought about the transportation piece and so I think it was quite a revelation it's just so kind of ingrained and so your your research then kind of led on to a new to a newer study the one that came out last year late last year um, that was then really interesting for us as we did the the Active Travel Media Awards. We could use that as an example of why language matters and why good reporting matters and why less good reporting, bad reporting needs um, perhaps highlighting. And so maybe you could t- t- talk to us about, about that, what came next after this first study. Yeah, I'll talk about how it came about and then Kelsey can talk about what we found. So, you know, we we found all these pervasive issues, but then the next question, of course, is does it matter, right? Is this just something that irritates, you know, transportation safety professionals and advocates on Twitter, or is it something that potentially really has an effect on how people view what's going on or what they think needs to change? And so we devised an experiment where we took one of, or really many of the kind of what we call the status quo or the common pattern and we created a um, hypothetical crash report or a fictional crash report. Um, and then we tweaked it very slightly. So fairly, relatively subtle. Um, we tweaked it so that there was three versions. So the first version having um, the status quo, the passive voice, the focus on the pedestrian, no agent type of work and using the word accident instead of crash. Uh, and then the second version, we kind of used the improving. So we said a driver hit instead of a pedestrian was hit, that type of work. And then the third version, we did that same uh, work that we did in the second article, but then we also included some context or what's called thematic framing, tying it to larger issues and trends and also to the built environment at the site. And then we recruited 999 people, which sounds like a funny number, but it's perfectly divided between three groups. And then we had them read the article and then answer some questions. And they didn't know that there was two other versions. So they only saw the version and knew they were answering questions about that. And what's sort of amazing is that these very tiny changes that Tara described have a huge effect on how people perceive a crash. And so let's just talk about the first sort of issue that we talked about, sentence level grammatical choices. If you shift from pedestrian focused to driver focused, and you make sure that there is an agent, those two changes reduces blame on the pedestrian by 30% and increases blame on the driver by 30% from one article, one time. 
And so I, when I'm talking about this work, I get really excited because if we changed every article, every time, you would see this really dramatic change in how we think about who's responsible for these crashes. But like Tara mentioned earlier, we don't just want to blame drivers. There is a systematic problem with our roads. And so that's what that, that third article was. Um, there we used thematic framing, which explicitly connects the dots between all of the different crashes by you know, including crash statistics, by describing the location of the crash and describing why a pedestrian might want to cross there in the first place. Including those thematic elements um, changed uh, like how people saw blame as well. And they were much more likely to, to blame other factors, sort of quote unquote, uh, the, the road system as a whole rather than the driver or the pedestrian. So when we shifted to that third article, we found that readers were much more likely to blame other factors like the road system. But then for me, the most important part of it is that they, su they supported different solutions for improving road safety. So they did this dramatic shift from individual level solutions, like an education campaign, to systems level solutions, like adding pedestrian infrastructure and lowering speeds. And if we want to save lives, this, those are the sorts of things we actually have to do rather than victim blaming. And we had one final question that had a really important outcome is that we asked them about a trade-off. Basically, would you trade off, you know, this road that you take every day, lower speeds for fewer uh, pedestrian deaths? And it was the people who read those improved article framing, particularly the thematic framing, who were more likely to say, yes, I would, I would accept, you know, that speeds would be lower. And, you know, and we kind of assumed that people in their mind would mean that I would take me longer to get where I'm going for a drop in pedestrian deaths. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? Because you could argue that um, the that changes to our streets could hinge on just how we talk about them. It, ex public acceptance of change is one of the major issues and because it impacts how willing pol politicians are to make these changes. If they think people don't want them, then they're not going to do them. But if you can talk about road safety in a way that people understand with the context and with the focus in the right place, then you could shift people's perceptions and therefore impact how likely we are to have safer roads, which is huge, really. It's probably necessary, but not sufficient, but absolutely the first step. Yeah. So a lot of local news reports particularly come from local police reports from the collision. So it's not just the media that we need to be that needs to be targeted in terms of, you know, thinking about the context, the wider context, who's involved. And also, you know, we need to talk to law enforcement about this as well. That was one of the outcomes I think we were not expecting but that came out of, that was very clear in our first study is how frequently the local news media was just either printing, direct quoting the press, the police press report or quoting an officer on scene or clearly paraphrasing, but incorporating the same language from the police reports. And so that was something we identified as absolutely like you're saying as a huge issue. So even further upstream uh, from the media reports is, how police are thinking about this and how they're trained to speak to the media, um, whether it's on scene or someone calls them up because they heard about a crash 
or the official uh, press release that like in the U.S. it would be the public information officers is the title typically. So that's something that we've talked with some law enforcement professionals that are really interested in pursuing and looking at how that process exists now or how it works now to train them or what kind of information they get. And then also what might work to get them as well, thinking about these a little bit differently, watching out for their own biases that we all have internalized, like Kelsey said, these ways of phrasing things and how that can be improved as well. So that's something we're uh, working on and looking at doing next. And uh, Rachel, obviously, it's a this is an American study we're talking about, but it has um, it kind of is the same issue that we have in the UK, isn't it? And I, I wonder if obviously there's a similar situation, but it is different. I mean, in the US, we have um, jaywalking rules and, and the whole I guess that language kind of implies that if you're on the road, not on a crossing, then you're at fault. But it's it's a similar issue in the UK, isn't it? I wonder if this is the kind of research that we would need here or if if there's something that we could take from it. I mean, I think it's great to have this study and just the evidence that it has just looking at one single story has such an impact in how people um, how people respond and how they blame or, or, or don't blame um, road users, the road system and so on. So it's it kind of um, it, reminds me of a study that I was involved in looking at coverage of cycling fatalities in London, um, where the story is, I think, involves the media being quite influential in getting a change in cycling policy and getting greater public support for cycling infrastructure, um, including where it involves taking space away from drivers. And I'm just looking at the um, chart now that we um, have in the paper, which is quite stark, which is that generally cycling fatalities didn't get covered in the local London newspaper in the 1990s. And suddenly in the 2000s, they started getting covered more and more to a point where all of them were getting covered in this local newspaper. And I had a student do a bit of a qualitative analysis of this um, as well. And she found that generally the framing did involve, it wasn't just individual tragedy flame framing, it was often including um, comments around the road network and safety for cyclists and putting it in a broader context. So uh, when we wrote this paper, we thought, well, this seems to be having an impact. The fact that it's being covered and that it's being framed in this way, I think is having an impact on policy and public opinion. And this paper really suggests in, you know, in the opposite direction in terms of having, you know, potentially having a negative impact, that this does happen in a measurable way. So yeah, very much, I, I think we can see the same things happening here. And I'd like to see more research. In fact, I was going to ask um, you, Tara and Kelsey, what you would think, what, what kind of follow on research you would think, what, what needs to be done now following on from this study? Well, one kind of actually a question I have for you, or and it speaks to future research, we found in our reviewing those 200 articles that the media had reached out or spoken to a like a transportation safety professional or you know, kind of a road safety advocate, 0% of the time. So in zero of those instances. And so I'm curious if in the study that you did where there, there was comments about the road network and points to these larger system issues, if that played a role that the people who were involved in writing or the people that they consulted, um, you know, helped m- make those ties. Because it's not fair, of course, especially in this media environment to expect all journalists mm. to now be experts in, in road safety or how the networks work, but having those relationships and knowing who you can talk to and reach out to, to bring that context, we think is potentially really important. And I think that's one thing that 
um, you know, would be something going forward to study, like how do, how could that work differently um, as far as those relationships or, or knowing who to talk to and what that would that have a measurable positive effect and how these things get talked about? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really good point. And I'm trying to remember um, whether we specifically um, looked at that, but certainly um, other work that I've done looking at some of these networks in the London context has suggested that, you know, having this coalition where you have some of those road safety experts, transport experts, advocacy people in those networks together who can share information and educate each other. I think one of the things that happened in London as well was that a lot of the journalists who were writing these stories were themselves cycling or new people who did. And therefore, you know, some of these issues um, came into quite sharp relief for them because they were experiencing the same kinds of things on the streets. They were experiencing being second class citizens effectively when they got on their bikes and being treated in a way that, you know, perhaps was different to what the ways in which they were treated in other parts of their lives. But um, yeah, I think you will also um, find now more diverse people being quoted. Although, um, to be fair as well, there's um, I think the police, um, the road safety police in London um, are doing quite a lot of stuff around, for instance, speeding and trying to highlight this as an unacceptable behaviour. Um, so they maybe approaches to road safety have also changed as well. And the quotes that you'll get from some of those people were maybe not what you might have got 15 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting to see things shifting, isn't it? And it's interesting to see, um, I guess, the cycling reporting was based on some very effective campaigning from the likes of the London cycling campaign in in London and 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 we are starting to see this reporting and um Andy Cox of the Met Police has been fantastic about speeding because it is obviously one of the major causes of death and serious injury on the roads and he's all about making it socially unacceptable uh, I guess that your your latest study was about pedestrians they seem to be, the pedestrians seem to be, we, as we're all pedestrians, seem to be the next kind of group, if you like, of road users who are perhaps getting more of a voice but have struggled in the past because perhaps they don't associate as one group or they're not associated from the outside as one group and and you wouldn't call yourself a pedestrian. You might call yourself a cyclist, maybe. Um, but, yeah, I think maybe that's the sort of the next thing that people who work in road safety are very keen to push up the agenda because far more people die walking on the roads than cycling, but it just doesn't really get the kind of coverage. So one thing that I, you asked about sort of future work. Um, one thing that I just actually got accepted this week is a paper about distracted pedestrians. And to explain how this links to the media, I have to take like one step back. Um, and that is that I asked a bunch of uh, transportation practitioners if they were worried about distracted pedestrians. And turns out they're very worried, right? Uh, they estimate that crazy high numbers of people who are dying on our streets are dying because they were distracted. And one of my questions was, where did that come from? And there's this idea called the illusory truth effect. So the more often you hear a fact or the more often you hear a narrative or story the more likely it is to ring true. And we sort of documented in this paper just how prolific and pervasive this coverage of distracted pedestrians was in the United States. I'm not sure if it's the same in the UK. And it just gives such an easy out for the rise in pedestrian deaths. And 
it doesn't, you know, focus on things like speeding or on driver responsibility whatsoever. So all of these things are linked in the sense that the stories we tell really matter and they're going to shape the things that we do to save lives. Yeah, I think quite often the media is looking for someone to blame. And a lot of the reporting we're seeing around cycling and walking during the coronavirus crisis is people disobeying the the social distancing rules by walking together or cycling together. And people are photojournalists are using um, telephoto lenses, basically, to make it look like people are walking close together. And they've got like a mile of, there was one from Bournemouth, and there was a massive amount of seafront. Did you? Yeah, and the guy said, yeah. I know this route. Here's the this beach hut. Here's the cliff. And there's like a mile between the two. But it looks like it's super close. That is a really great example because the guy who debunked that debunked it because he runs it so often. So he's very familiar with the distances, which I think is a great example of how when you do, are you walking or cycling or rolling, you are so much more aware of those parts of the environment and the actual distances and things like that, which is why it's so important to get people out of their vehicles and out of that windshield bias so I thought that was just like a perfect encapsulation of a lot of things uh that that story yeah and the pedestrian you asked about the uh distracted pedestrians is definitely something the editors have said that they might be interested in for me and I'm just thinking no I'm not going to go there yeah (laughs) well and Kelsey's work is so vital because it's not just the media or it's not just the dinner table conversations. It's the the professionals who were responsible. And I think much in the way that you're talking about the media sometimes, or, or people are looking for a scapegoat or someone to blame the professionals in a sense are too, even if it's subconscious, because if not, they have to take responsibility for the things, the things that we're designing and building. And that's, that's something that like, I think the human brain is, kind of push it back against, at least subconsciously, of saying, no, this is the system. And I, I think it one, you know, and this is a, a research, uh, potential research project, is looking at folks who really understand Vision Zero or the safe systems approach and how, and I'm talking about planning professionals and engineers and folks like that, and then looking at their language around these issues versus people who you know, again, are more likely to the distracted walker or the scofflaw cyclist or whoever, and not blaming the system, but blaming individuals. Mm. I'm sure we could sit here and in an hour come up with four careers worth of (laughs) (laughs) it is interesting because it does it does sort of it does kind of it feels like it needs more I don't know, it needs more attention, basically, because like we were saying, how we talk about things is so important to how we see, how we perceive the world mm. and stories are so vital. And if we're seeing it kind of upside down or we're all about um, individual responsibility when the environment sends us so many cues on how to behave. And I know Rachel's done um, research on this about, you know, what's the road space, what's the pedestrian space and the things like having road signs on the pedestrian space and and yeah it's it's yeah it's sort of a, a space for cars basically many of our streets and so they're the, they're the dominant road user and and then everyone else gets blamed if they if they dare to infringe on that mm-hmm. on that supreme right yeah yeah if, if i could strike one sentence from all the verbiage of this is or all the way we talk about this is outside of the crosswalk because when we talk about pedestrians, right, that's always in there as though they were doing something wrong. But when you're thinking about what you're talking about, like how much of the road space is allocated to cars, 
And we funneled pedestrians into these little crosswalks, which may or may not be the safest place to cross or the convenient place to cross or where the destinations are to cross. Mm. Um, that I think is a good encapsulation of like how we've set the, the car user as dominant mm. user. So, Yes. And it kind of is part of transport planning and modelling all the way through really often, isn't it? Because, for instance, here we count motor vehicle delays at crossings. but We don't count pedestrian delays. So an easy way to solve delay problems is to make pedestrians wait longer. But then you make the pedestrians wait longer. They cross while the pedestrian lights on red. Well, then it's their fault. So it just it sort of reinforces the marginalisation of people walking. And we could get on to um, the whole sticky topic of how we prioritise or whose time we value on the roads. But I guess that's a whole other podcast. But it does. It all kind of feeds into each other. Episode two. <laughs> yeah. Three, four and five. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say, knowing what you know from your research, what if we were, well, we're drawing up reporting guidelines for media in the UK at the Active Travel Academy. What What would you say those reporting guidelines should should say what what advice should we be giving people working in the media people who are rushed to get x number of stories out every day they don't have a lot of time so i would give two pieces of advice first at the sentence level make the driver the focus of your sentence not the pedestrian and make sure there is an agent that is the driver and not a car um, and then the second thing is harder, and that is to make sure you include some sort of thematic elements. How many crashes have occurred, even nationally? The national crash statistics we can look up very easily. It's, it's better if it's local crash statistics or even hyper-local on that particular street, um, but those are more difficult. Um, and then I guess a third thing, I'm going to be cheeky out a third, is to try in advance of crashes to make a connection um, with a planning professional, a transportation professional, an advocate. And there's some responsibility on that their end as well to reach out proactively um, so that there's some sort of expert knowledge um, included in the article beyond just the driver who described that a pedestrian darted out in front of them. We need more context than that. And I would add that even within the constraints of being, you know, really stretched thin and having to get something out very quickly is, you know, as a reporter, it is part of your job to critically think about what it is you're reproducing or reporting on. So, uh, you know, the local news media, their job is not just to replicate uncritically what say the police press report says. So take that, um, you know, executive decision or whatever to say, well, even if this is how the police worded it, we're going to word it in a way that's more appropriate. Mm -hmm. We can say like the police report said, however, and then adding these elements or fixing these elements that that Kelsey's talking about. I think even in the constraints. And I think too, everywhere, pretty much everywhere, there's going to be people in your communities that care about these things. So telling them or helping them understand what they can do to help you is they want to help you make your job easier or, or you know, help you on these issues. So it, it doesn't need to be an antagonistic relationship at all. It's just about what do you need to be successful in the constraints of your, your job? And is there, are there any things that they can do to make that easier? I thought of another one. 
Oh yeah, go on. <laughs> All of the the news coverage that we saw was digital news coverage. And so they they always had a photo, or not always, often had a photo, often a stock photo of a cop car or maybe a bicycle on the ground sort of destroyed by a car. Um, and one thing that we found very effective was when they included a Google Earth or Google Street View image of the roadway. Because suddenly wow. you no longer think, gosh, this is some idiot pedestrian who darted out. There's no sidewalk. It's four lanes wide. You know, it's clearly 45 miles an hour. Uh, and so that kind of context is also really helpful and can happen in seconds without visiting the site. Super interesting about the Google Street View thing, because I write for a website and sometimes we have to source our own photographs and we do end up going to Google Street View just because, you know, resources and it's, yeah, but I'd never thought of it as a useful way of depicting, you know, why something may have gone wrong at that location. One of my favorite, so we read all 200 of those articles and one that I was tasked with reading was a man was hit, right, walking, and he was walking in the street, uh, and this article was from February in a place with snow. And I Google Street viewed the location because I was curious. And there were no sidewalks. And there were four lanes. I mean, this, so this example was not pulled out of nowhere. And of course, yeah. the man was walking in the street. There was no other option. So, And that simple thing changed the entire story. That's amazing. Thanks so much to Tara Goddard and Kelsey Ralph for coming on the podcast. We'll put a link to their study in the notes. And now for part two of the Active Travel podcast, we are continuing the theme of media reporting of active travel with Christina Kaimoto, who's talking to us all the way from Turin. She's discussing her book, Discourses of Cycling, Road Users and Sustainability, an Eco-Linguistic Investigation, and Rachel will introduce her. Hmm. Great. So hi, Christina. Um, so you've written this really interesting book, Discourse of Cycling, Road Users and Sustainability. So it's due out in July, but I was lucky enough to be able to look at an advanced um, copy. And one chapter in particular is relevant to our theme this week. But I think the whole book more generally is because it's about how we talk about road users and cycling or cyclists in particular. And I wondered if, first of all, you could just describe the general idea of the book to our listeners. What's it about? Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to um, to be talking to you. And uh, so the the idea is that from uh, the perspective of my discipline, which is critical discourse analysis, and the idea of critical discourse analysis is, is to investigate how language reinforces um, power in society and how language can be used to change uh, balance of power. But the power between uh, the various actors that are involved in mobility choices is uh, has never been analysed from a discourse perspective, because apart from being a linguist, I'm also um, a cyclist advocate. I thought I might um, try to to bring discourse analysis to cycling cycling discourse. Brilliant. So that's the the general idea. Great. So what's what's your you you mentioned already being uh, a linguist. Is this the first time you looked at cycling? Oh well, I studied anti-political discourse mainly, mm-hmm. uh, both in translation and um, you know, or only focusing on um, English, and uh, basically looking at uh, ideology and uh, as I said, strategies to. Uh, promote a certain kind of worldview 
and on the other hand, strategies to try and and change things. And I've also worked on sustainability, uh, focusing in particular on greenwashing and uh, how English is used in Italian to promote a, a certain view, you know, le- related to the market and promotion of consumerism in general. Yeah, fantastic. So um, how, how did you come up with the idea of um, looking at cycling specifically? What motivated you? I was involved in a local association in, in my city, Turin. Uh, as you may know, Turin is the city of Fiat. And so it's a city where driving is promoted and it's always been promoted in all the possible ways. I've always been a cyclist. I've always moved around Turin on my bicycle. I became involved in a local association called Bike Pride. We organize a um, parade every year. And I was the, um, the president of the association for, for one year in 2016 when we were electing the, um, the current mayor. And I realized, you know, I was often involved in debates with yeah, local administration, etc. And I realized that the kind of discourses that I was working on with my students concerning uh, racism and sexism and human rights, exactly the same strategies were coming up in, in these debates about what should we prioritize? Why should we stop prioritizing cars? And what are the rights of people? Why, you know, why should we pay attention to uh, other aspects and so I thought okay here you know we, we have something new for linguistics. Wow indeed and you've got um, you're analyzing a range of different data sources in the book you've got media um, reports you've got policy documents you've got um, secondary qualitative data interviews so how did you decide what kind of documents to look at what kind of data? That was that was difficult it, it took a long time well I just I just started looking at various different documents and on one hand documents trying to promote cycling uh, you know basically the the question i think we all try to answer is why we have all this data and we have all this evidence that cycling is so good so why is it not working why are not people choosing to to promote cycling as much as we would expect given the all the evidence we have and, and yes, I try to, to answer this question from the perspective of a linguist. And the idea is that framing is mainly basic, important uh, starting point. And I refer in particular to the work of George Lakoff. He has a, a very interesting paper, um, Why It Matters, How We Frame the Environment, where he explains that uh, we suffer from what he calls uh, tragic hypocognition. And we conceive uh, humanity as something separate from the environment. And uh, this idea is so deeply embedded in our way of thinking that we find it very difficult to uh, think in uh, different terms and look at things from a different perspective. Reframing is a very complex process. And... um, the first thing you need to do is identify what is not working. So I was trying to find out what is not working in the way cycling and cyclists are talked about in several kinds of uh, documents and sources. So the first case study I worked on was uh, the way in which 
some newspapers in Britain reported the um, the collision in which took place in London, um, where uh, Kim Briggs lost her life. And what I was interested in was uh, not the event itself or um, the court case itself and, you know, the, the, the specific uh, ways in which it was analysed, but rather how newspapers used that case as, let's say, an excuse to portray cycling and cyclists in particular in a very negative light. And to do this, I used the, the discursive uh, strategies, the, the analysis created by uh, Tim van Dijk, who worked on racist discourse in the press. And he basically has uh, what he calls six discursive moves. And uh, he looks for these moves in the newspaper articles uh, in order to identify how racism is uh, presented as something not racist, first of all, uh, but something reasonable, acceptable, and something that makes sense in many ways. Uh, and so I used this uh, six discursive moves to analyze the articles about the collision. And I found the same discursive strategies to uh, actually attack all cyclists and, uh, and, and portray cycling as uh, something problematic that uh, needs to, to be tamed, to be controlled, to be cancelled in many ways. Uh, and also the interesting thing that uh, Van Dyke points out is that these moves to justify what is actually racist discourse uh, often criticise a whole group when they should actually just be criticizing the actions of one person. And also the, the anti-racists are described as the real enemy. And we see something similar in the way in which the cyclist advocates are the real enemy uh, when it comes to finding out who is responsible for uh, the, the war between cars and bicycles or drivers and cyclists. And these were comment pieces, weren't they, from four different newspapers? There was one by Janet Porter yes. that I think um, got quite a lot of traction. And there was one from, she was in the Times, right? And then there was the one in the Guardian, one in the Independent and one in the Scottish Daily Mail. That's right, yes. Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of shocking to hear someone comparing um, anti-cyclist language with racist language. And I know that it's something that some people have said and perhaps said, uh, you know, quietly or with a slight element of embarrassment. And, you know, the history of racism has a huge amount of um, violence and uh, oppression involved in it. So I don't know, one wonders if sort of comparing it with racism might be going a bit far. Um it's not really about that, and I don't want to compare uh, the kind of discrimination and, and suffering uh, that is uh, linked to, to racism. Absolutely not. This is about... Um, it's just about the language. Discursive structures. It's all about the language. It's, it's a method that you can use again. Is something similar has been done in, by a group of uh, psychologists who uh, use the strategies uh, to detect dehumanization 
and tried the same by uh, interviewing drivers and finding out the same um, kind of attitude, the same kind of strategies uh, that happen uh, towards cyclists. So this is about methodology, really. And, uh, you know, you're not comparing uh, what has been done, for example, in uh, concentration camps, what is is being done to people's cycle. Of course not. But the kind of triggers are the same. That's the interesting thing, because once once you can pin down what is actually going going on, you can you can make sense of it. Um, and for example, I think it's it's interesting to look at what what happened in the the article from the Guardian, where uh, the the journalist was trying to, to create some kind of dialogue with the the readers, and in particular, he was trying to address uh, cyclists in, in a friendly way. That was the most subtle one that you came across. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think I think some of the, the aspects that you can uh, observe in that in that article are uh, probably subconscious for for the writer, uh, and in particular, I was um, was looking at the the headline that says cyclists must realise they are uh, traffic too. Uh, now, if we imagine this is this is a strategy we, we often use in linguistics uh, because if if you hear this sentence even as a cyclist at first. You think, oh yes, that that makes sense. You know, we need to be we need to be aware of the fact that uh, we can hurt someone. If in, in that case it was a there were tragic consequences, but uh, of course, if if we hurt someone with a bicycle, you know, there are likely to be consequences. But the thing is, if you imagine the same headline about uh, a collision uh, that killed a pedestrian, you know, a car killing someone driving, killing a pedestrian. And you and you imagine something like, oh, uh, drivers should realize they are traffic too. Doesn't make any sense, right? In fact, killing someone by running into them with with your bicycle is an extremely unlikely event. It, it can happen, unfortunately, but it's extremely unlikely. So most of the time, you don't expect it. Uh, but the the implication of the article was uh, cyclists are not aware of this. The unsaid implication is on the contrary drivers are Uh, but if we look at the statistics we know that most collisions happen because people are uh, looking at their phones or uh, they're they're not paying attention they're driving too fast they're driving uh, when they're drunk and, and so on so that obviously means that drivers are not aware that they can kill or they, they don't show it by the way they behave. And of course, uh, here I'm talking about drivers as if all drivers were the same, which again, of course, is false. So coming back to the headline, uh, now this headline implies that uh, cyclists are not aware of the kind of danger they, they, they could generate. Uh, but uh, if we turn it around there, you, you see the subtle implication um, Drivers are good and cyclists are bad, uh, which I think is is not what the journalist meant, but it it is there when you look at it. And it is so interesting um, reading how you really sort of take apart the nuts and the bolts of the article. And and I wonder, as a journalist myself, sometimes you're writing and you you might not you don't think about it on this level. It's very much subconscious, and so it, it is quite interesting because intuitively you know when something's not right. 
and in the context of cycling because I cycle too obviously but you can't always say why even if you're doing this for a living and so I'm wondering with with journalists writing this stuff you know there's definitely something subconscious going on and how do you how do you kind of address that it's 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 always I mean language is subconscious most of the time uh, whether we are listening or reading or, or writing or speaking, uh, most of what we understand and most of what we communicate is subconscious. This is particularly evident when we use metaphors, because uh, a metaphor is something that the listener or reader understands by finding the connection between uh, what we call source domain and target domain. So what we are uh, actually talking about and the image we are using to describe what we're talking about but yes most most of it is subconscious and it is influenced by what we call uh, dominant ideology I think uh, a problem when we try to promote cycling is that we are using dominant discourse without realizing it Mm -hmm. and what we are actually doing we are reinforcing a certain kind of mentality which is actually detrimental to the promotion of cycling Mm. and the dominant discourse is well your literature review you noted that 61 percent of articles involving cyclists had a broadly negative sentiment and there was a a subtle but consistent blaming of, of vulnerable road users in the media so that's the kind of that's the dominant discourse isn't it i wonder do you mean that it that kind of dominant discourse sneaks into or bleeds into positive promotion of cycling too? Yes, yes, I think it does. I think this can be seen in the way the promotion of cycling often uses the, the same uh, strategies to, to promote any other kind of business. So the business side of it becomes dominant. You know, this kind of um, attitude where we try to convince local administrations or the government that uh, promoting cycling and increasing the number of people cycling is a good idea because it will um, mean something positive for the economy and it will boost uh, green jobs and uh, it will be positive for business and the cost for the NHS will go down because the number of people having a heart attack or being obese and so on will go down and, and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, all these uh, aspects are perfectly true and they're also important. The problem is that these become the dominant aspects. And if these become the dominant aspects, if money, business... Uh, become the the main thing, then the problem is that the current system, pre-coronavirus, okay, is somehow working, you know, from the point of view of business and the economy. You have something that is working against something that might work. Which one will you choose? <laughs> Protecting the status quo. The one that works. Exactly, exactly. So the point is, we all know this very well as uh, cycling advocates, right? The reason why we want to increase the number of people cycling is related to uh, air pollution, is related to feeling better, not being stressed on your way to your, your 
on the way to work or wherever else, uh, is um, reducing the likeliness of yourself or people you love being uh, killed in a collision. This is not about business. Business is one part of it. Okay. Um, now, the interesting thing uh, in this historical moment is that uh, the, the narrative of the protection of the economy has been uh, suspended for a while. Right now, we are protecting life rather than the economy. And in, you know, from the perspective of climate change, this was not happening because the life that um, wanted to be protected was the life of what polar bears, trees in the forest, uh, distant, you know, something away. Uh, while right now the life we are protecting is our own. So, it, you know, the, the, the reaction is, of course, different. And so right now, the narrative of first we need to protect the economy has been suspended. And the narrative is first we need to protect human life. But the problem is we should stop thinking of it in terms of a dichotomy. It's not a, the economy against life. It's uh, finding a way of uh, bringing the two things together and uh, remembering that the economy is something that should make us feel better. It's not something more important than feeling better. So that is, it's a very simple message in the end. But uh, when you look at the language we use, this, this very simple message most of the time. And it's it's yeah. really interesting, isn't it? Because that change of discourse has perhaps enabled the kind of changes to the streets of many cities around the world that we that people have been calling for for decades but ha haven't happened to date. And it's because of that threat to safety and the protection of people we now see more than ever as crucial to our to our very lives and our safety and the running of the food system and you know our shops that we need to get our food and and these kind of emergency cycle lanes and and perhaps that discourse has has helped to enable those that protection of people finally on the streets rather than protecting the so-called right of people in vehicles to move as fast as as they want to hopefully Hopefully, the, the debate is is going on, isn't it? Some countries are some countries were very quick to create temporary cycle lanes and expand the, the space for people who walk and people who cycle, while uh, in other countries this is taking longer time. And I'm following the, the local debate in uh, Turin, and it's, it's being hard you know, because uh, we, there, there is one political side that is pushing for uh, we need to protect the, the people from catching the virus on public transport. And we need to allow them to, to go by car because that's the safe way of doing it. And yet, so you have to fight that kind of uh, ideology. Mm. And another thing that you noted in your chapter on um, the Charlie Alliston case was the sort of links between um, discrimination in discourse and threats, and which is quite interesting. And I think that Australian study on the dehumanisation of cyclists, that found the same thing, that the more people saw cyclists as other than human, the more likely they were to act out violently against them, which, which is quite interesting. And so this kind of discourse, as it is, can have very negative impacts on people's safety 
you know, it's part of a continuum, I think you said. But also, if we could change that discourse, then perhaps we could reduce those kind of acts of violence on the road between drivers, well, when, when drivers act dangerously around people cycling. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the first thing we need to do is to uh, stop talking about cyclists and pedestrians and drivers, because this uh, creates different categories and the, the whole uh, narrative of the war on the roads is based on the idea that different groups, different categories are fighting for uh, space on the road. That this is why I thought it would be interesting to look at it from uh, the perspective of racist discourse. And um, by the way, something fascinating is also that, uh, of course, racist or any other, you can think of any kind of discrimination, uh, also sexism, for example. So these are uh, these kinds of discrimination uh, discriminate people for a characteristic which is always part of their identity. While uh, in the case of cyclists, of course, it's not. We are not cyclists 100% of the time. Um, so this, this idea that people can be classified as cyclists or drivers or pedestrians, when we really think about it, it doesn't make any sense. It's like calling someone a gardener because they like to, you know, <laughs> they like to keep their garden nice. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, so it, it shows you that there is, there is something ideological going on uh, when, you, when you divide people uh, like that. And um, in fact, another document I, I analysed in my work, um, the 2018 Mayor's Transport Strategy, I noticed that the word cyclist is never used. And when I looked at the, you, you can also download uh, a draft that was published a few months before the official document. And um, I think there are four or five uh, occurrences of the word cyclist in that draft, and they were removed. Interesting. So it's, it's clear that they really paid attention to that. And the word they used was Londoners. But we're talking about Londoners. We're talking about citizens, uh, not about different categories. And then uh, to, to refer to the various ways of moving around. They use people cycling or people walking or uh, active mobility to talk about both, uh, people using public transport. And very interestingly, from a um, linguistic perspective, when talking about people driving, they don't use the verb, but most of the time they use car dependency. Mm. And so this is also fascinating because Another problem that you have when you try to promote cycling and convince people to reduce uh, their car use, sometimes, you know, uh, also uh, cycling advocates make the mistake of actually accusing uh, people who drive because of their choice, implying that their choice is uh, stupid or um, just thinking for themselves. Uh, and uh, you, you don't convince people by accusing them. And so the idea that they talk about car dependency implies that the people who drive don't choose that. They depend on the car, and the, um, the discourse in that document is that the administration is responsible for this dependency, and the administration of the city has to do something to 
help people uh, get rid of their dependency, just as if they were talking about um, drugs or uh, alcohol or any kind of other dependency you can think of. Mm. And driving has been compared with smoking, hasn't it, in terms of impacts on health? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. Um, so the media analysis is focused on the um, UK media. Do you think, I know you haven't studied it, but do you think other European media is similar? Is the UK particularly bad or do you think these patterns are probably found elsewhere too? Well, uh, the, the country I know well, of course, is Italy. And it, it's probably even worse than, <laughs> than Britain. Um, no, this, this is happening all over the place. And... Yes, it's uh, the, the thing is, it's, it's part of the dominant mentality and you know, it's linked to uh, neoliberalism. It's linked to um, the way we focus on efficiency. So, um, for example, the, the idea that making the traffic flow is uh, the most important thing for citizens. So this is, this is a very deep idea that drives the choices of um, many policymakers and uh, they, they think they're doing the right thing right when they when they make that choice uh, so it, yes it has it has to do with with dominant mentality and uh, in order to fret to, to change the dominant mentality you need to work on language how do you do that <laughs> that's the difficult question well first of all you need to be aware of it because I think Many journalists, many activists, many uh, people involved in trying to change things are not aware of the fact that in many ways the language we use doesn't help us at all. Uh, in the sense that, for example, this idea that uh, we are part of the environment is extremely difficult to be um, explained with words because the very words we use conceive humans as separate from the environment. The environment is something that surrounds us. It's not a system of which we are part. So how do you change it? You can work on, uh, on metaphors, for example. Um, pay attention to the metaphors. One source I used a lot in, uh, in my book is uh, the work of Gerlinde Mautner, who talks about marketization. And she shows how the language of the market is dominant uh, across all kinds of discourses that have nothing to do with the market and market logic. Uh, so, for example, she looks at uh, religious discourse. She looks at books about self-help. Uh, so she has many different examples where she shows how the dominant language, which is the one of the market, is used through metaphors. Of course, we have other metaphors from other domains, uh, like we can have military metaphors. But when we see those metaphors, we, we notice them. All of us have noticed how uh, we've been talking about the, the COVID-19 as a war. But when we have this kind of metaphors from the market, we don't notice. So, for example, the ECF, the European Cyclist Federation, uh, I analyzed their document, which is called the EU Cycling Strategy. And they often repeat added value. Added value is a kind of language taken from uh, the market, right? 
so why are you using those words to talk about the value of feeling better if you cycle to work? You can, you can use other words, but you choose to use the ones from the dominant discourse because the dominant discourse is powerful and instinctively we always try to imitate the dominant discourse. This, this, is, a, this is something that happens all the time. It's, we, we always imitate the ones we, we want to be with, the ones uh, that are dominant because it's powerful and instinctively we think that our discourse will be powerful as well if we use their language. The problem is that in this case, we are trying to promote a new kind of perspective, a new paradigm, and you must use a different language. I'm sure it's conscious in many cases. It's appealing to this dominant discourse because you feel that people might listen to you perhaps as an organisation or listen, accept your cause, or if you're talking to someone in their own language almost. Yes, yes, that's, that's what happens. That's the process. And it's a very natural process. And uh, in, in some ways it works, of course. My point is that when you're trying to promote cycling, you need to be aware of uh, the deep links between neoliberalism and auto mentality, so centered on the automobile. Uh, so these two things are deeply linked. So when you use that kind of dominant language, you're actually promoting the dominance of cars. And if you're trying to promote a change and to reduce the number of uh, people using cars, you should not use that language or you sh at least you need to be aware of the dangers. And I think you talked about in your chapter on um, media in your book about how it needs to be more revolutionary, the language, instead of being about the status quo. It's about having a making a dramatic change. Yes. Um, well, I was referring to the work of uh, Corrado Poli, who uh, identified three ways of thinking about mobility. And one he calls traditional. Uh, so it's based on, on the market logic, which is, okay, if there are traffic jams, it means uh, the demand for space is uh, increasing. So we need to provide more space for cars. That's the traditional, uh, which we have seen at work. Yeah, we call it predict and provide. Exactly. And then uh, there is the, the second one, which, which is about moving, shifting some of the people from cars to uh, public transport and basically maintaining uh, the same level, the same number of people moving around. And uh, I think it's interesting, he compares this to uh, the need to reduce waste. And he says, in, the, in terms of waste management, it has been understood that the only way of improving waste management is to reduce the production of useless packaging. You will not solve the problem of uh, waste unless you reduce useless packaging. And he says, uh, the revolutionary approach has to uh, start from the same idea, so the, the fact that we need to reduce how much we move, we need to reduce the demand because the amount that we need uh, to to move around cannot is not sustainable. So the cars are the useless packaging, or the excess trips are the useless packaging, or both. Yes, yes, the trips, the trips, and again, this is something that we 
uh, might be able to learn from the lockdown experience. Maybe some people, maybe some companies uh, will realize how the need to go to an office to uh, have online meetings that you could have from home, uh, you know, it's, it's not unnecessary. Just stay home or work maybe one or two kilometers from your house, but, but not traveling far to do something that you can do from home. So this, this could be one, one aspect. Another one is uh, shopping nearby rather than traveling by car, you know, to a distant shopping center and, and so on. All these kind of changes that could be brought upon. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I'm sure I can imagine a lot of people are going to be in the campaigning world or the policy and the policy world are going to find this super interesting because it was really interesting for me reading what you'd written and looking at the, the kind of language and just talking about doing just doing things differently, not trying to go along with the dominant discourse, but trying to change that discourse. What, one thing I suggest is to frame it as well-being. So that's referred to uh, the, um, the approach I've used as one of uh, ecolinguistics. So ecolinguistics is about creating new narratives, new framing, new ways of using language to improve life. Uh, so the, the, the importance of life and the protection of life and the importance of well-being are really at the centre of uh, the new kind of discourse that we can create. And this is also linked, we can think of the donut economy. You know, it, that's, a, that's a good metaphor, for example. Uh, so it's something, it's something that you desire, right? It's not about giving up something. Because if, if we talk about it in terms of we should give up, uh, then this kind of discourse is not likely to be accepted. It has to be framed in terms of it's going to be better. It's, it's about our well-being. It's about uh, being happier than we were for all the various reasons, for health reasons, for the fact that uh, you, you feel better, that you have more time for yourself. And, you know, we, we know all the various reasons why we promote cycling, but we need to uh, make them evident in the kind of language that we use because we tend to hide them because we take them for granted. We think it's obvious. You know, if you cycle, it's better than being in a car. But people who spend their life being in a car don't know. So we need to explain why. And it's not because you save money. Of course you do save money, but that's not the point. It's like telling someone who smokes, you should stop because you save money. <laughs> they would not do it for that reason. That, that might be one of the reasons, but you would not convince people to stop smoking only uh, through that. And of course, it's, it's very hard to convince someone to stop smoking, but people who convince themselves do not do it because of the money. They, they do it for, for other reasons. I'm sure that money is only one part of it. it you should not frame it as the dominant part because yeah. it doesn't work. Do you think that's an area for future study, eco, more sort of eco-linguistics around active travel? Or hope so. <laughs> I think it's, it's important to to look at it from, from the perspective of language, because it's something that non-linguists are not really aware of, because as, as we said, it's mainly subconscious. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much. And um, I look forward to, to reading the whole thing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was great. So that's it for our pilot episode of the Active Travel podcast. Thanks to all our guests, 
Tara Goddard, Kelsey Ralph and Christina Kaimoto. We've put a link to Christina's book in the notes and on the website. That's now available from Paul Grave. And um, we'll also have the link to the previous study we discussed. You can find the Active Travel podcast online on our website at blog.westminster.ac.uk forward slash ATA forward slash podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at active underscore ATA. Let us know what you think. Drop us a tweet or an email at activetravelacademy at westminster.ac.uk. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.